Hello. Hi, it's Suzanne Delbanco from Catalyst for Payment Reform. How are you? Hi, Suzanne. Good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. So thanks for picking up the phone today. As I think I let you know, I wanted to talk to you today about the intersection of your experience as a health policy and health industry expert and someone who has experienced opioid addiction, as I know a lot of the employers and others that we work with are trying to figure out how to meet the needs of people who have various substance use disorders. And so thanks for taking the time to talk today. And as you know, we've got an audience listening in, and and while the subject matter is a little sensitive, so I'm not going to ask you to share your name, I think it would be really helpful for our listeners if you could share your background. Sure. This is a a hot topic right now, so this should be fun. Uh, So my background is really a smattering of healthcare operations, healthcare policy, and uh, kind of a passion for product work. And I say product with the big P. So not necessarily benefit design, but the whole product portion of the work we do in healthcare. And I've been really lucky to land in organizations where I could grow and try on many different hats. Um, And I really loved working with you at the Pacific Business Group on Health. Uh, And that was the place where I really felt like I got to test what it feels like to be at the intersection of policy and what I call reality. So, you know, often we have these great hypotheses about what we should do or what we can do. And then, you know, as operators, we try to implement it in the healthcare space. And it turns out that the healthcare market is not very rational and it's super fragmented and really disorganized. And sometimes our best hypotheses just don't work. So <clears throat> I've really been in, enjoying being able to make policy work in a real healthcare environment. And that's been my passion. Well, I remember when we had a chance to intersect that I was really impressed with your very operational, you know, mind where, you know, we have all these theoretical and and big picture goals we want to achieve, but, Mm -hmm. you know, what what foot are we going to put forward first and and what's the next step we're going to take? And and, um, that's how I try to think about things. So I found a lot Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, compatibility there. So, you know, you shared with our audience that you're an expert on, you know, health policy, strategy, reform, operations. So how is it that you became an expert as well on opioid addiction? Yeah, so probably about 15 years ago, I started with some weird sensations in my left foot. And I was quite the athlete, you might remember. I was an avid long-distance cyclist and a triathlete. That really was my passion in life was being outdoors and gosh, we built our own kayaks and I mean, we were just definitely super outdoorsy and, and I loved it. I was living the best life. Um, but I had this weird sensation in my left foot and I had no idea what was causing it. And I'd had back problems. I used to row crew and I, I'd blown my back out a couple of times, but I kind of ignored it. You know, I just thought I'm going to work through it. And so after a few years, it started creeping up my leg and started becoming more of a problem. And it was, it was painful and I couldn't really get relief from it. And I didn't understand what was going on. So I went into, actually, I was a Kaiser member at the time. So I went into Kaiser and saw a doctor and uh, she said to me, you know, this actually looks like MS. And that kind of shattered my world right there. Um, and I thought, oh my God, I really, you know, I wasn't expecting that. I thought maybe there was something going on with my back or, you know, something like that, something simple. Um, and that sent me on a whole journey 
And I tell you, just chasing a diagnosis, that's a whole nother conversation, Suzanne, <laughs> that we right. could have. Right. Um, but at, at, finally, after I don't know, probably like three or four years messing around with this, I was going to physical therapy and I was seeing a doctor and both the physical therapist and the doctor really, really urged me to use my pain medication. And I was of the mind that, you know, gosh, that's just dangerous. I don't want to, I don't want to become an addict. I don't want to take it. It's really dangerous. But this kind of, you know, attitude with medicine had changed a lot. And it really was, you're suffering for no reason. We have a way to treat your pain. So I remember my physical therapist saying, you just need to take a pain pill and get over it and get back to it. And so I felt confused, right? Because I thought, oh, I I don't know. That's supposed to be really addictive, but maybe, maybe I won't get addicted to it. Maybe if I'm just careful about it, it won't be a problem for me because I'd never been addicted to anything. I wasn't even really a drinker. So I am, you know, started taking the pain medication and it was starting out, you know, with just Vicodin with five, five milligram codeine with 500 milligrams of acetaminophen. Well, we all know now, and of course we knew then, but there was this, you know, you can read all of the policy history on how we got here, but the whole idea was that if you're really taking it for legitimate pain, you wouldn't become addicted, but you are going to build a tolerance, right? So you're going to need more over time to address your symptoms. And my symptoms were progressing and we couldn't nail a diagnosis. I had, you know, lumbar punctures. I went to Mayo. I spent at least $25,000 out of my pocket trying to figure out what the heck this was so that I could fix it and I could get back to my life. And I couldn't, they don't know. They still don't know. And it's um, progressed to be pretty serious now. And so the only way I could have a life was to take these pain medications. It really was the only way I could work and I could function. I could certainly not take the pain medication, but what that meant for me was missing out on just about everything in life. My kids were young, not that young. I guess I should say they were teenagers and they had a lot going on and I wanted to be there for that. And they were very understanding and would say, you know, mom, just stay home, but no one's going to stay home with you. You know, they're going to be like, you stay here. We'll go out and do this other things and we'll come back and tell you all about it. And so I really found myself getting depressed and reaching for those pills more and more and more because to me, it was really the only way I could have a life similar to what I had. And I have to say, I might be a little bit emotional. There was a lot that went with that right? A lot of coming to terms with the, the way I needed to change things. And at the same time, building up more and more tolerance. And, and it was okay because the doctors were giving me more and more drugs. So it wasn't, wasn't a problem until it was a problem. And um, I, you know, check in with people all the time. I really did. Like my best friends I would check in with and my family and I'd say, am I acting different when I'm on the pills? Like, do you feel I am not as sharp or do you feel I'm compromised in any way? Because I don't live what a lot of addict lifestyles are where they hang out with other addicts. And so they're doing it all together and it's part of their social circle. That's not my life. Right. So I have all of these non-addict people around me. I'm the only one who's using any kind of substance and I'm looking for feedback to see whether or not 
I was compromising myself. Maybe I'm screwing up and I don't know it because I'm on these meds. But when you're on them at that level, you don't feel high off them. I I don't know how to explain it. You just feel normal. And then if you don't take them, you feel really unnormal and sick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but it's not like I was walking around stoned, right? I was, and everybody I asked, whether it was employers or friends or my children, they're all like, no, you're, you're fine. Like we don't, we worry about you because we know you're really exhausted because they do make you tired, but you're not acting in a funny way or a way that we have a hard time interacting with. Um, so I wasn't getting feedback that told me you're an addict. Uh, although now looking back, I can see the strain that things that it had on my relationships. So I, I think that folks were being accommodating because they knew I had a real condition and reason for taking it. And so I think that that was all part of it was the enablement from others who didn't want to see somebody that they care about suffer. One of the other interviews that we did was with someone, uh, Molly Brody from the Kaiser Family Foundation, who had surveyed people who were using opioids. And it seems like it's more common than not that people who are taking them are taking them because it's really the only way that they can carry on what they consider to be their normal life. Um, because without it, their their pain would keep them from being able to do their usual activities. So I think your story is probably more common than not. And I agree 100% with that. And I looked at Molly's research. <clears throat> and actually, Molly's research is one of the reasons why I reached out to you. Because I, I felt like it was good research. And also putting that with maybe a voice of a real consumer and a policy person might help. So that's, that's I, I, I see that. The thing I think that you really have to test, and I don't know how to test this, is you may have started out using those the pills for that reason. Are you still doing it for that reason? Or even even harder to understand and to, you know, a hard pill to swallow, no pun intended, is it's part of life to have pain. And so how are you going to live your best life in some pain, which people do all the time, right? So I think testing yourself about whether or not you really have a secondary reason now for using the medication. And I think there are people that can stick with the prescribed amount. And then there are people that can't. And maybe that's the diversion between somebody who is physically dependent on the medication and someone who's become addicted. And for me, that line started to blur. Mm-hmm. So I started taking more than was prescribed, telling myself that it was okay because I was in pain, needing to get refills sooner or to up the dosages to actually lethal amounts. And I found myself taking dosages, and it's not the opiate that's the danger, it's the acetaminophen, quite frankly. So I ended up taking dangerous amounts of acetaminophen. And so you know me, Suzanne, I'm super analytical, and I want to lay out every option that there is. I want to make a quick decision, but I really want to go through this process of understanding. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, went through, did a lot of research, like, what, what are my options? If I'm hitting this really high level of acetaminophen, 
in order to get this pain relief, the next step is to start taking opiates that don't have acetaminophen in them. And those are much stronger. So the only path to the end, it was either you're going to be on methadone at some point, which I was, you know, you're going, you're going down a path where you're going to be on the strongest painkillers, whether it's fentanyl or morphine or methadone. That's the path I was headed down. Or you need to get some help and figure out what's the right amount of pain for you to have to live with. And during that time, and I'm you know, comfortable because of the anonymity telling you this, I have been so close to checking out, permanently checking out of my euphemistic way of saying, I think, well, you're probably taking up what I'm putting down. And because I couldn't reconcile having a life with that pain and being so isolated and mm-hmm. not being able to work and to be able to do those things that are so important to me, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that. And I didn't know how I was going to go on. So it's really deep despair time for me. But so... So how would you describe your experience as a patient? You're going through all this. It sounds like you've got caregivers throughout, but in so many ways, it sounds like you were feeling very alone at dealing with it. Um, Yeah. So what did your caregivers do well, and where did they really fail you, and and how how have you found a path forward to this moment? Great question. So I think uh, – I think – there are so many different care, caregivers in my story because, as you know, we were moving around a lot. So mm-hmm. um, I had to constantly find new caregivers. And in the beginning, the you know caregivers were like, "Yeah, okay, we're not we're not too worried." I wasn't taking that much medication. I was taking like two a day for a really long time, and then I like jacked it up to four, and that was like, I, I was that was a big amount for me at that time. But I was craving a lot more and. And somebody said, you know, hey, there's a specialist at UCSF, um, and I think you should go and see him. And he really helped me. And so I went to see him, and that I'll never forget because it was a a real test. It really was a test, and I think in many ways I failed. But he knew my pain wasn't managed, and so he basically doubled my daily dosage um, for the short-acting opiates. And he put me on longer acting or extended release methadone. And his, he was very knowledgeable, very caring, very understanding. I think he felt like he had a patient who was, you know, legitimate and trying to do the right thing. Um, and his whole thing was, we're going to get you off the short acting opiates and keep you on the, the methadone because the methadone doesn't really give you that same euphoria but it's very dangerous. You could easily overdo it with the methadone and end up killing yourself. So, you know, he spent a lot of time with me, educating me about that. But at the same time, I had like the double on my shoulder was I had now access to up to nine pills of the short acting a day. So I had Mm -hmm. the biggest bottle of these short acting pills and I had to sign a contract with him and I had to do all those things. And I was really amazed at how easy it was to talk myself into, no, I'm in a lot of pain. I need to take more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you, you know, I presented pretty well, like a patient who wasn't, who was on top of it and wasn't going to have a problem. And so I don't, you know, it's so hard, Suzanne. I, I can't honestly say that I think 
that I wish he treated me differently. I, I don't have an answer for that. But when the crisis hit and everybody started getting spooked, that's when kind of the almost cruel treatment started to happen, where, you would, where I would move to a new area or whatever, and I would have to go in to see a doctor. And I remember one doctor, I was so naive about it. I just said, I take these medications. This is why. Here's my full medical history. I brought it all for you and all of that. And I don't really want to try other drugs because I've test- I tested, you know, 20 other drugs before that. And they just made me really stupid and tired, and I couldn't do anything with them. And so, so I've already been through all that. I just would like you to refill this Norco. And she just looked at me and she said, yeah, you're a drug seeker. I'm not going to do it. I kind of just, like, got up and left the office. And I was, I was shattered. I was like, I'm not a drug. What is a drug seeker? I honestly, I said, of course I'm seeking drugs. That's why I'm coming to see you. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm seeking drugs. <laughs> right. And I didn't know that there was like this like thing in the, in the physician community about addicts. I, I just was so naive. And so I was shattered and I just, I cried all the way home and I thought, well, what am I going to do? Right. And so I went to see another doctor and I found a doctor that was um, very, caring and was and listened and was empathetic and understood. And I formed a relationship with her that I've had for the last six years. And even when I was living in Ireland, I still kept her as my doctor and would come back to see her. And the reason why I liked her was because she educated me about the tolerance and what was going to happen without threatening to take it away from me, like helping me work at my own pace and I also, um, I reached out and joined uh, a video online uh, rehab. It was an intensive outpatient care program that's done all on video chat. It's fantastic. The woman who runs it ran Kaiser's substance abuse for like 30 years. She knows what she's doing. And it was so educational and so helpful that working with them and working with my physician who, by the way, gave me her personal cell phone number and texts me every day to check in and see how I'm doing. And this has been like for 90 days now. Like it's been wow. a long time. That's wonderful. She keeps up with, it's wonderful. She keeps up with me. I can tell her how I feel when I'm hurting. And she doesn't answer my, you're hurting, I'm giving you more meds. She doesn't answer it that way. She offers empathy. <clears throat> she does offer other suggestions. You know, but she also just understands that it sucks. Your pain, mm-hmm. it sucks. We can't fix it. Mm-hmm. And that's it. <laughs> and and you got to, you got to, that's where the industry is going. And I get it. But the point between taking people who've been on these medications for such a long time, who are, who are truly trying and just cutting them off at the knees, it's brutal. And on top of that, all the a lot of other stakeholders in the in your community are treating you differently too. You go to the pharmacy and you're getting an opiate, and I've had a pharmacist ask me directly, "Well, what are you taking it for?" Mm-hmm. Which really isn't any of that pharmacist business, right? right? And so the the feeling that you are weak, you're you're addicted, you're you're scamming them, you know, all of that 
is so yucky feeling that it's just adds to the devastation that you already, all that shame that you already are carrying around with it. Mm-hmm. It just gets added to you by everybody else in the industry who is like, oh, you're one of those. And so I guess the thing I really want to say is I hope that primary care doctors can be as empathetic as my doctor and can understand that most people don't want to be addicted to this. Right. A lot of us got there accidentally. So how are you going to help? Give me a hand, you know, don't give, don't push me out, but help me up. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I, and I know that sounds really kind of fuzzy. It's, you know, it's not super clean, but there's something there. So taking, you know, a step back to, I don't know if it's 5,000 feet, 10,000 feet, and, you know, going back to your experience in helping employers and other healthcare purchasers figure out how to be savvy about how they buy healthcare and how they provide benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, what mm-hmm. advice could you give, you know, based on your experience and, and your mm-hmm. professional know-how that, about what they should be considering when they put together... Mm-hmm you know, their, their benefit program? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think there's some policy decisions that are being made for the good of a population that are having some really adverse effects on people. And for me, going from, so I still take opiates, but I've been pushed off of these older opiates that have been around for a really long time and are generically available into these newer opiates that are really expensive. So I went from paying about $15 a month for my prescription, and I don't know how much my insurance carrier paid for that, but I know it was a generic drug and it wasn't huge, to getting onto this new opiate that uh, I started on January 1st, and it's costing me $800 a month for this drug. And so... Uh, thank God I have that money to be able to pay for it um, because if I didn't, it would push me into trying to find other sources. And this is exactly why we're having this, the problem with as many deaths as we're having. The prescription opiates are so expensive and they're so hard to get now that for people who have a problem and they don't know how to, and they can't get out of it, they're going to heroin, right? So, I hate as a policy person seeing what's happening with the cost of medications as a deterrent, but no viable alternative. So I would. And, so, and so tell me a little bit, just to explain, why are you on these new? Why are you on this new one? Is how is it different, you know, therapeutically than what you were on before? It's therapeutically uh, does not give you the same euphoria, euphoric feeling that a short-acting opiate gives you. Got it. So if you're not getting that euphoric feeling, it's, you're less likely to crave it. Got it. That's the idea. And so, um, you know, I really put in a lot of rules for myself. I implemented my own rules because I, I was worried that I was getting out of control. So I, I went to my pharmacist and said, hi, I'm so-and-so. I have this problem. I'm trying to get off of these opiates. You're my pharmacist. I'm only going to get them from you, and I'm asking for your support in this. And he just looked at me like, wow, okay. And I have a very good relationship with them now. It's been, you know, 
over a year and uh, I, he's great, right? He's, he's, he's like, you're trying and I'm trying. And I feel like you need that community feel. You need to be able to say to, I, I want patients to feel supported by everybody in the community and not shamed because they're going to get their medication or they're going to PT and getting shamed there because, they, they use opiates, right? So I think from a policy perspective, if we could build the support system or encourage people to build a support system, talk to the stakeholders all around you that can help you with your recovery and go get some help. And hello, substance abuse recovery programs. You need programs that are built for people who got into this through chronic pain and aren't your typical addicts. It's a really different. Like when I was doing the online therapy, I mean, I loved going to those group sessions because these people were tons of fun, but they were clearly <laughs> addicts. It was definitely very different. And I, I would speak up, but it was weird because they felt bad because I had the pain and they were like, well, you're, you're not one of us. You're doing this because you're in pain. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was a very awkward thing. And so I talked to the recovery program and I said, we need recovery programs that are built for this instance. And that recovery program should support this notion that you're going to be in some kind of pain. So let us help you deal with that kind of pain. You know, you're mm-hmm. going to, you know, here's some evidence-based training that we know works, mindfulness-based stress reduction, et cetera. And we're going to provide you with some addiction support, knowing that you are a hybrid. You're a, mm-hmm. you're a person who wouldn't have gotten here if not for your injury or your illness, but you are here now and you want to get better. So we're going to help you. But I think that there's a couple different things. A community approach to a patient's care works better. And, and then we need substance abuse and, and detox programs to start building a track for people who are, are in these situations where they, they got here accidentally, they want to get out, and they need a different type of support than you would give to your, her- your standard heroin addict. That's, I think that's a lot of really helpful insight. Um, anything else you want to add as far as advice for employers and thinking through what they should be doing to support people in their population who are experiencing substance use disorders? Yeah, I, I want to say a, a couple words about the stigma. And I, I know this is something that we still haven't been able to solve. I and mean, it's not new that we know there's a stigma to substance abuse and mental health disorders that prevents people from getting and, and seeking help. Um, so I don't, I, I can't tell you that I have the answer to that other than kindness. And so that, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more research showing that the best leaders have empathy. And I think this is one of those cases where it's really going to pay dividends. So if you can, from a leadership perspective and in a, not just benefits, but also from a leadership perspective, allow for someone to come in and be honest about their, what they're struggling with and provide them as much space as you would provide them to deal with their broken leg, to deal with this particular issue that they're, that they're going through. So in some cases, they might need to go away for a little 
bit of time and, um, and they're going to be ashamed of that. And so being as empathetic as possible and understanding it without, obviously you still have to run your business. So I'm not suggesting anything different. Um, but that, that sense of relief when you tell somebody what's going on and they don't shame you or judge you back, but actually say, Hey, I'm proud of you for coming and talking to me about it. I can't tell you how, what that feels like. It's such a scary proposition to tell somebody and that positive feedback loop that, you know, I'm glad you're getting help. I'm glad you're doing the right thing. And your job isn't going to be at jeopardy if you can, if you can take care of this. Right. Because a lot of times you don't even know. I don't think anybody even knew outside of me telling people that I I was having this problem. And I tell people everything. So so I, I think there's a leadership component around empathy. I think there's a benefits component about making available these programs, specifically talking to your carriers about what tracks they have on that. And then, you know, uh, advertising it in a way and letting people anonymously seek more information and get more information about these new tracks that will really appeal to those folks who have the, you know, blown disc who are you know, eating Morocco like candy and you don't know and they don't want to tell you but need help. So this has just been incredibly um, helpful, I think, for both me and for everybody else listening in and understanding, you know, what it's like from the perspective of at least one person who understands the healthcare system really well, knows how to navigate it, but yet found herself in a situation that was really hard to address and in in many cases very lonely. Um, but, uh, you know, the insights that you've shared and the ideas for how this can be done better, I think people will take to heart. And I think the good news is, is that we're seeing this, this topic come up very high in the list of priorities for employers now, including, you know, the issue of stigma and how to address that and, mm-hmm. um, you know, how to meet people's needs, understanding that this is a disease like another disease. Um, just like you said, it's like when someone comes for help with a broken leg, you know, let's, mm-hmm. let's think of this in the same way, um, although, of course, you know, dealing with the nuances that it presents. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for your willingness to share your story. I think it's going to be really helpful to um, everybody who gets to hear it. And of course, I wish you all the best in having as little pain and as best mm-hmm. care as you can possibly have in the, in the, in the time to come. Well, thank you. And I think um, I just want to close with you. You hit the nail on the head. It's a very lonely journey. And whether or not somebody is using those, those drugs or not to deal with their illness or pain, that the loneliness is, is, is a fact. And if you can be a, a good leader and a good listener and a good friend to your friends and your staff and everybody else, the world would be a better place. Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head there, Suzanne. Well, here, here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, we'll stay in touch and thanks again.